So there's an elderly lady and her uh, husband has just passed away. Uh, and so she finds herself wealthy, but she's also stingy. And so now she's got to call the newspaper and set up his obituary, but she doesn't want to spend any money on it. So uh, she's talking to the uh, the guy from the newspaper and he says, well, the obituary, uh, it's going to be $5 per word. And then she says, well, $5 a word? She goes, just put husband died. And then the guy says, well, ma'am, it's a five-word minimum. She goes, five-word minimum? She says, how about husband died, Volvo for sale? <laughs> Today's message is called eulogy. And um, yeah, there we go. Uh, and uh, we're going to be investigating the life of King Solomon. Uh, and we're going to discover some important lessons. But I want to begin with a question. I want to ask you this. How do you want to be remembered? When you're long gone, how do you want to be remembered? So our three points today are going to be pride, fall, and humility. And again, we'll be looking into the life of King Solomon, but we're also talking about my life and yours. And we're asking this question, how do you want to be remembered? Our three points are going to be pride, fall, and humility. Hey, let's pray together. See what God has for us. Dear Lord, I I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, you're always faithful and you're an awesome God. And Lord, um, you care about us right now in this moment. And you know where each one of us is. You know uh, the state of mind that we were in when we walked in this room. But God, uh, you also care about eternity. And Lord, there's a bigger story being written. So God, I pray you would help us have eternal perspective. Um, Teach us about King Solomon. Lord, but I pray, Lord, that the things that we look at today would have an impact in our lives today and the rest of our lives, Lord, and beyond that into eternity. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so our first point today is pride. And uh, what you need to know about King Solomon was he was given great blessings by God, uh, but they eventually went to his head and he became proud about it. Now, just a little background, Solomon was the son of King David, the same King David who defeated Goliath, uh, the same King David who took the 12 tribes of Israel and united them into one kingdom and made Jerusalem the capital. And so the day came where David died and this kingdom passed on to his son Solomon and he found himself suddenly in the position of king, actually of the greatest nation in the world at the time. So Solomon actually had a humble beginning. And we're going to start in the book of 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. And it says this, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Right there in verse 3, that little phrase, it says, Solomon loved the Lord. And I think this, there is no greater compliment that anyone could ever pay you or me, but to say that the way they think of you, the first thing that pops in their mind, is that you have a love for the Lord. And so here, what was written about King Solomon, the description of him was that he loved God. So he had a great beginning. And then we go on, we're still in 1 Kings 3, and we go to verse 5, and it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Can you imagine that? If Almighty God were to appear to you in a dream, 
and say, ask me anything you want, anything. I mean, I'm so shallow. The first thing I would think of is season tickets to LSU, you know. But, I mean, really think about it, though. What if Almighty God appeared to you in a dream and said, I will give you anything you want? What would you ask for? Well, King Solomon had that opportunity. And we see in verse 6, this is what he says. It says, And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, Verse 7, and now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. So Solomon's response, it shows great humility and selflessness. You see that right there in verse 7 where he says, I'm but a little child. And the idea is, I mean, I'm just lost and I need your direction. His words and attitude, they convey uh, that same uh, humility and selflessness. And what he asked God was for this, for an understanding mind to govern God's people. Well, what happens is this in verse 11, it says, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches. Verse 12. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. Verse 13. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor. And so we see Solomon had this humble attitude when he began. And God gives him this great offer. And what he asked for is for wisdom, wisdom in order to govern God's people. And God was pleased with that request. And so he told him, I'm going to give you what you asked for. I'm going to give you that wisdom. But I'm also going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to put in your charge all kinds of wealth. What a feeling to have the favor of God. Because at the moment, that's exactly what Solomon had. So let me summarize what happens next. Solomon receives this wisdom from God. Think about it, okay? Not counting Jesus because Jesus was, you know, almighty God in human form. But as far as just all normal men and women who have ever walked the face of the earth, Solomon had more wisdom than all those people. Solomon also had greater wealth than anyone who's ever walked the face of the earth. Even people like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, uh, if you were to compare their riches to his day, uh, and, and, you know, took inflation into account, he was still wealthier than anyone that has ever lived. And his kingdom had rest from its enemies. And so he had it all. He had wisdom. He had wealth. Uh, he had a kingdom that was at rest with its enemies, you know. And you get this feeling like, hey, it's good to be the king. The renown of his kingdom spread to every corner of the map. And then what happened was, He built two buildings. He built a temple to honor God. And then he built a palace for himself. And so I want you to see what it says about, first of all, when he built the temple. It says in 1 Kings 6.38, he was seven years in building it. So just keep that in mind. It took seven years to build the building that would honor God. But the very next thing we're going to read about his palace is the first foreshadowing that something was going to fall apart in Solomon's kingdom and he was headed for trouble. Look what it says about when he built his own palace. This is 1 Kings 7, 1. 
Solomon was building his own house 13 years. Now, let me say something here. 13 is not an unlucky number, okay? So we're not going to be about superstition. But the number 13, biblically, is associated with rebellion. And so we're not going to look up these verses, but if you want to jot these down and look them up later, uh, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 4, it's the first mention of the number 13. And again, in that verse, it's associated with rebellion. But also, just a few chapters later in Genesis 17, verse 25, um, Ishmael is circumcised at the age of 13. And if you know anything about Ishmael, his descendants always gave trouble to God's people, to the Israelites. And so for that reason, when it mentions here that Solomon was building his own house 13 years, there's an indicator, there's a foreshadowing that he and his kingdom were headed for trouble. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14 we see another verse that foreshadows uh, some trouble. It says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. I think every one of us recognizes this number, but you may not know where you've read it or heard of it. So it's actually in the book of Revelation. We're not going to look that up. But let me just briefly say this. This is a number that's associated with the Antichrist who is yet to come. And the Antichrist will be a man who presents himself as God and people will follow him and he will right he will lead them away from God but the reason his number is 666 is because the number 6 is associated with the day that God created man if you remember God created man on the 6th day and then God rested on the 7th so the number 666 is a, a triplicate so the idea is that there's a man who's presenting himself as the trinity and that's why when the Antichrist comes, his number will be 666. But here in the story, it tells you this, that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. And it was foreshadowing that he was headed for trouble and his kingdom was headed for trouble. So what happens is this, y'all. Think about it now. Think about it if it was you, okay? Let's not be too hard on Solomon, okay? If all of a sudden you had all this wisdom and all this wealth, I mean, all this stuff, and your kingdom is on top of the world, might it go to your head? Let me just ask. I mean, I don't know. We've never been in that position, right? But in Solomon's case, he began to feel untouchable. And little by little, he moved into worldliness and he moved away from the God that he loved. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. And this is where his fall begins. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Okay. Uh, verse 2, it says, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Now, let me camp out on this verse for a second. The problem's not that he liked foreign women. Okay. All right. God likes women, you know, he created them, right? That's not the problem. The problem is what he says here is that surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. The problem was that these women that he loved, none of them had a heart for God at all. And the prediction was that in time they would lead Solomon's heart astray from God. And that's why God um, had, had given this warning to Israel long ago. And Solomon uh, decided to to uh, to become interested in these women, and he deliberately moved into sin. So what happens? Well, 
Uh, in 1 Kings 11, verse 3, it tells you specifically how bad it got. He had 700 wives, you read that right, who were princesses, and 300 concubines, which basically are, uh, are maids that are at his disposal, at his beck and call, uh, anytime he wants. And his wives turned away his heart. We're going to talk more about this later, but for right now, I just want you to remember these numbers. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Solomon, who had it all, who had been blessed of God, had a thousand women at his disposal. Okay, just keep that in mind for later. So sure enough, just like God had warned, if you follow these women who don't love God, eventually you're going to give your heart to them and to their gods. And sure enough, what happens in 1 Kings Chapter 11, verse 5, it tells you the extent of the idolatry that Solomon fell into. It says, verse 5, For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, that's the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So that's two different idols that it's talking about here. In verse 7, it says, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, that's another idol, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch the abomination of the Ammonites. So it names four, uh, and there were probably others, but it names four specifically in this passage. God had predicted, if you love those women, you're going to follow their idols. And sure enough, that's what happened in his life. And you need to know this, y'all, that fourth one that it mentions, um, the, uh, the idol Moloch, to worship him included child sacrifice. And I don't want to go into the details of that, but understand that if Solomon was worshiping Moloch, that means... That means probably some of his children and then other people as they came to worship uh, this idol. They were bringing their children to sacrifice to this idol. And that's how awful things became as his heart moved away from God. So let's summarize what we've read so far. Solomon began with a humble heart. And then uh, he got this wisdom and this wealth. And little by little, he became proud. He felt untouchable and he forgot God. Now, in 1976, the NFL added a team called the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, It's been a long time ago now. And what you may not remember or may not know is that back in those days, uh, uh, an NFL football team, the, the season only lasted 14 games. Well, when the Buccaneers began playing, they lost every game their first season. They were 0 and 14. But when they started their second season, they lost their first 12 games. It's still an NFL record. They lost 26 games in a row. And so every team's expectation was if you're playing the Bucks, right, you want them on your schedule because they never win. They're easy to beat. And guess who was their next appointment, uh, next uh, opponent? I'm sorry. None other than our beloved New Orleans Saints. Now, the Saints were very confident they were going to beat the Buccaneers. Why not? They had lost 26 games in a row. But here's the worst part about it. Sometime during the week leading up to the game, Archie Manning, who was the quarterback at the time, and I've always been an Archie Manning fan, but this is what he said to reporters. Why did he say this? He said, it would be a disgrace if the Saints lost to Tampa Bay. Why did he say that? Well, news of what he said made it to the Tampa Bay locker room. Now, do you think that fueled their fire at all? Well, let me just tell you the short of it. 
with two minutes to go, it, by the way, they played in New Orleans, okay? So it, this was actually on our home field. With less than two minutes to go, a minute and 55 seconds to go, the Buccaneers were leading 33 to 7. Okay, do you think maybe uh, they were a little angry about what Archie Manning said? Uh, maybe their defense was angry. Here's what the defense did. Uh, they ruled the day. Six interceptions, one forced fumble, five sacks of the quarterback, three defensive touchdowns. Do you think they were motivated? After the game, uh, Saints linebacker uh, Richard Wood that they used to call Batman, this is what he said to the reporters. I can't wait to get into the dressing room so I can cry. <laughs> and he said this, a grown man ought not to cry out here in front of all these people. <laughs> okay. Hey, you know what, y'all? Proverbs 16, verse 18 says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Do you know who wrote Proverbs? King Solomon. Okay. So sometime between the time that he became really, you know, really uh, arrogant in his uh, in his ruling of the people and, you know, follow these women and got into idolatry sometime between then and the time he wrote Proverbs, he had learned some lessons. Okay, and so what happens is this, y'all, is that right? It says here pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. This actually leads to our next point. Okay, Solomon experienced uh, a big fall. So. There was a learning curve to life. Um, Solomon indulged himself. And you know what? He got an education. Uh, when we forget God, he has a way of reminding us who he is. And you know what? He has a, a way of reminding us who we are too, right? How big he is and really how small we are in comparison. Um, I, want you, I want to look at a, a, a conditional promise that God had made uh, really to Solomon, to the kingdom of Israel. This comes out of 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 6. And God had said this, but if you turn aside from following me, this is before Solomon, right before he really, you know, uh, where things got going for him, okay? Well, he still had a heart for God. God says, but if you turn aside from following me, verse 7, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. Verse 8, and this house will become a heap of ruins. That was the warning. By this time, Solomon received that wealth, then he started following women, and like we said, he got into idolatry, including uh, child sacrifice. Now, what happened in Solomon's life is this, is that later on, after he got through his proud part, right, when he was, when he was indulging himself in all that sin, um, he had a fall, and he and the kingdom just fell apart, uh, and then later on, late in his life, when he's looking back on the decisions he made, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And he wrote back and tells you some of the things he had learned by that point, some of the things God had taught him. So we can learn from these things too. So we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 2. And here's what Solomon says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. He's speaking of himself. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Okay. And what he was saying was this, that he had learned is that everything in life appears worthless. The cycle of life is pointless, hopeless, and meaningless unless there is a God. 
And when you read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, that's the main lesson you find. And he goes through the book talking about different cycles and different specific things he had done as he tried, really, to forget God and to run from God. So, regarding knowledge, this is what he said. And remember, he was really, right, he was brilliant, okay, and and all that wisdom in his head. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13. And remember, this is him looking back, okay? This is what he says. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. That was his attitude. It's not that knowledge is a bad thing, but that we're not going to find fulfillment in life just by having knowledge and wisdom. We've got to find something deeper, something eternal. How about his self-indulgence? Well, he writes about that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings. Hey, everybody, Solomon had it all. And I know there's days where... Well, I'm thinking everybody in here, or at least most everybody, has had days where we thought, oh, if only I had, if only I had, you know, that wealth, especially like Solomon's. He had it all, but he became miserable. All that wealth did not bring the joy and satisfaction in life he was looking for. And in fact, he was really a more joyful person before he had it all when he just loved God. Um. If you remember, uh, there's a play or movie called Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, there's, a, there's a point in the movie where these two, these two poor men are having an argument. And they're both poor and they're talking about the world's riches. And one of them says this, money is the world's curse. And the other one says, may the Lord smite me with it. <laughs> and then he says, and may I never recover. <laughs> Man, we all want it, don't we? Solomon had it. Solomon had it. And he was miserable. You need to know this too. Okay, we we talked about this earlier. Uh, Solomon withheld nothing from his sexual appetites. And we see this in the last part of that verse in in Ecclesiastes 2. uh, The last part of verse 8 right there. He talks about, and many concubines, uh, the delight of the sons of man. Okay, he's referring back to those days we talked about earlier. And look, what an understatement. Many concubines. Are you kidding me? He had a thousand, thousand women. Okay, now specifically there were 700 wives, 300 concubines, still a thousand women, and none of them loved God. Okay, that's the main thing. None of them loved God. Now, I can think about a thousand reasons why this would be a bad idea. Okay, I'm just going to name one. Think of the word drama. All right, just think of that. A thousand women, none of them love God. That means on any given week, 250 of them are angry at you, okay? And they were foreign. They're not even yelling at you in English. <laughs> so my mom used to say, me da cholera, okay? And it just doesn't translate, but y'all know what I'm talking about, okay? Um, <clears throat> on any given day, y'all. Uh, now, here's the thing. Uh, some of you young guys in this room, you might think, hey, a thousand women, that sounds nice. And the way you picture it is like this picture here, Okay? That's how you might picture it. But look, let me tell you, in reality, this is how it would be, this next picture. <laughs> okay? Now, you think, 
You think this might just be conjecture. I might just be making some of this up. Well, Solomon wrote about some of this, okay? Like I said, he wrote Proverbs. Well, look, in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9, this is what he said. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Okay, do you think he knew what he was talking about? Okay, later in the same chapter, he says this. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Okay, do you think he learned something by the time he wrote this? Right. Solomon was blessed of God, but he forgot God and he suffered consequences. Eventually, he summarized all the things that he had gotten into, the whole, you know, chasing after money and knowledge and women and idolatry. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11. He says this, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, all that running from God, all that stuff he accumulated in his life to replace God, and he was miserable. Now, you can go to the next slide. Um, y'all need to know, I've been married 31 years to Connie Lopez, and I love Connie Lopez. Everywhere I go, I talk about Connie. But I want you to know this too. I well remember the first argument she and I had after we got married. Now, it's feeling a little tense in the room, so let me tell you, I have permission to tell this story, okay? So, uh, after we got married, the very first fight we had, I mean, it's important that you understand this, that we both knew, man, if we didn't get this settled, I mean, it was going to destroy our whole future. So the very first thing we fought about, are you ready, was Raisin Bran. Okay, so let me let me tell you how it happened, okay? So what happened was it was one day, it was a weekday, and we decided we were going to meet at home for lunch. And so, and there was already tension in the house. I don't remember what was causing that, but there was already, you know, that cloud in the house, okay? So she and I meet, we used to live on Transcontinental and Metairie, actually close to Al Copeland's house, okay? Even though he never invited us over for dinner, what the heck? So anyway, um, but there we were, and it was lunchtime, and so, you know, I grabbed my sandwich, and we're at the kitchen table, and then Connie, you know, kicked her shoes off, propped them up, and she had my Raisin Bran box in her hands, okay, and she was snacking. Now, we're talking, and whatever it was we were working through, all of a sudden, I realized that she wasn't eating the Raisin Bran. She was just picking out the raisins, okay? You understand? This is important, all right? And so, now look, if you ask her later to tell the story, she's going to tell it differently. But the way I'm telling you is the way it happened. (laughs) So I look at her and I very calmly and peacefully said, what are you doing? She says, one word answer, nothing, and keeps eating the raisins. I'm hot. Okay, I got to She doesn't know what she's doing, maybe. All right. So I got to explain what's going on here. So I tell her. You're eating the raisins out of the raisin bran. She had another one word response. She said, so, (laughs) and kept eating them. Okay. Well, now I'm fuming, right? And so then I tell her this. I tell her, um, wait, let me make sure I get this in the right order. Uh, Oh, shoot. (laughs) I should have jotted some notes down on this. Okay. Okay. I said, oh my goodness, make sure I get this, this line right. Oh, I said, I remember now, I got it, I got it, I got it. Okay, I said, um, 
let me explain what's going on here. I said, if you eat all the raisins out of the raisin bran, I'm going to be stuck with the flakes. Okay? Now she gave me a three-word response, and the third word was Sherlock. I never did understand that reference, okay? <laughs> then I tell her this. I said, if you want raisins, why don't you go to the store and buy some raisins? Okay? And I thought, end of argument. Oh, no, I underestimated her. See, Connie's the youngest of 12. She's got nine brothers. She's been arguing since she was born, okay? She looks at me and says, if you want raisins in your flakes, why don't you go to the store, buy some raisins, put them in your flakes? (laughs) I showed her. I switched to Cheerios. (laughs) But I got to say this, though. I got to be honest. For two weeks, every time I opened that Cheerios box... I halfway expected to find raisins in it, okay? <laughs> so it didn't happen, y'all. Hey, watch, guys. Uh, you and I uh, are the same as King Solomon whenever we hear the word of God and we thrust it away from us, okay? Whether you're reading the Bible or if you hear a sermon in church or maybe a friend of yours quotes scripture to you and you feel something just kind of touching your heart and telling you, you know, God's voice saying, I want to remove something from your life. And when you and I say, no, 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 I want my way. I don't want your way. When we care more about our story rather than the story God's trying to write, we're just like King Solomon because he had the word of God at his disposal and he refused to listen to it. Well, here's what happened, y'all is in Solomon's case, right, he became proud and then, right, he was destined for a fall. And what God would like is this, is rather than you and I resisting him, what he would like is for you and I to submit to him. And when we submit to God's word and the changes he wants to make in our hearts, what it does, it produces humility. It produces a heart that can actually worship God the way he deserves to be worshiped. So, humility. God has the ability to bring us down from our high horse, doesn't he? But the less we fight him, the sooner he can produce that humility in our hearts. I want to talk to you about a man who lived his life well. His name was Eric Little. And uh, in fact, you may remember him. He lived from 1902 to 1945. You may remember him if you saw the movie Chariots of Fire. It actually won movie of the year way back in the early uh, in the early 80s. But let me just tell you a little bit about Eric Little. Uh, he excelled in short distance running. And uh, in 1923, he set the British record for the 100 yard sprint. And so they thought, well, hey, he's the fastest guy in Great Britain. He should represent us in the Olympics. But what happened was this. The Olympics were held in France, and Eric Little came. And so he was going to be in a few different races. But the one that he was a shoe in that people expected him to win a gold medal was the 100-meter race. But what happened was the preliminary race was scheduled on a Sunday, and Eric Little was a Christian. So now he had to make a decision. And what he did was this. He decided he would not run in the race. In other words, he sacrificed his gold medal because he didn't want to run on the day that was set to honor the Lord. And so can you imagine the flack he got from people from his country? And they were angry at him. 
Uh, and here was Eric Little who cared more, right? Cared more about the larger story. Cared more about pleasing God than he did about people. He cared more about serving God and eternal riches than worrying about winning a gold medal that eventually is going to burn up anyway. Um, let me tell you a little bit more. Uh, uh, actually, you know what? Let me tell you this. Uh, there's another race he actually did get to run in because it didn't interfere with Sunday. And it was the 400-meter race. And people were so impressed uh, with, his, with his walk with God, right? Some people loved it and were impressed with it. Other people criticized him. But one of the American athletes slipped Eric a note like in his hand before he ran that 400-meter race. And the note came from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. And it said this, Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who honor me, I will honor. And he ended up winning a gold medal in that 400-meter race. But beyond that, he was also called to be a missionary in China. And uh, I don't think... They, they mention that in the movie, but they don't really go in depth. So let me tell you about that. Um, he went there to China in 1925, and he was actually in China for uh, for 20 years. So he arrived in 1925. In 1941, uh, World War II had begun. And so Eric and his family had to... They stayed in China, even though they were recommended to leave the country. Um, he, they stayed in China, and they went to a, a rural mission state, uh, station where they offered people medical help and, and food as well. In 1943, he was arrested, and he was an example to uh, the other prisoners in the camp. In fact, one of the other prisoners said this, that Eric Little gave me two things. He gave me his old shoes from when he would run, and he also gave me the ability to forgive others because Eric Little is the one that led this man to Christ. So wherever, wherever Eric Little went, he always presented himself as a son of God first, and he helped people know about the larger story about Christ. In 1945, he died in prison, and this is something that came out later, is after he died, they found out that he actually was given the opportunity to leave the prison. But what he also knew was that there was a lady in the prison who was pregnant. And so he gave up his chance to leave prison so that this lady could leave in his stead. That's a life well lived. Uh, my favorite quote, you're already looking at it, uh, is he said this. He said, I believe that God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that line because whatever he did, if he was running a race in the Olympics, he could feel God's pleasure. When he was being a missionary, he was feeling God's pleasure. When he was in prison, serving that time and allowing that lady to go free and leading people to Christ, he was feeling God's pleasure. And you and I can have that same experience, y'all, when we put God first and keep him first. King Solomon eventually uh, closed out the book Ecclesiastes. And this is how he closed it out. Uh, one of his last thoughts. This is in chapter 12, verse 1. He says this. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. King Solomon, he had it all. 
right? We talked about that today. He had wealth. He had women. He had, you know, power. And he forgot God. And yet, at the beginning of his life, when he was humble before God, was when he felt the most joy and peace. And then at the end of his life, when he got his life right with God, was when he could feel that peace again. So let me ask you this question. I, w- I want to ask you this. Um, next picture, please. I'm sorry. Um, these are just three little application points for you. The first one is this. I have a picture up here of a funeral. And I do this with high school kids sometimes too as they're planning out their lives. And I tell them this. Number one, you want to begin with the end in sight. You want to think about there's a big story being written. Not just the small story that you're writing today, what you care about, whatever's frustrating you today or whatever goal you have set today, but the big picture, y'all, the eternal picture, all right? Begin with the end in sight. Number two, write your own eulogy. And here's what I mean. Right now, be thinking about how do you want to be remembered? I can tell you my first five points of my eulogy that I've already written. And I've been living my eulogy for years. And my eulogy is this. Uh, Number one, I want to be remembered like what was said about Solomon early on, that I loved God first. I want to be remembered that way. That's what I'm shooting for. Number two, that I love Connie next. Number three, that I love my kids and my grandkids. Number four, that I put people before the ministry, meaning this, there's a task to be done. There's a job to be done, but people matter more than the job. People have to come first before that. And number five, that consistently I want to have impact one life at a time. I want to have impact one life at a time. When we compare ourselves to somebody like Billy Graham, we think I'll never be able to fill stadiums like he did. But you know what? God hasn't called us all to do that. Okay, that was Billy Graham's calling. But what you and I can do as we walk with God, we can have impact one life at a time. I don't know how you want to write your your eulogy, but I would encourage you to pray about it. Ask God, what's going to be important to me? The third thing is this. I want to encourage you all to read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's actually a short book. Um, You know, it's broken up into 12 chapters, but the chapters are short. Uh, it would take you less time than you probably spend on social media. You know, I'm just saying, you know. So, um, but the book of Ecclesiastes, in fact, let me tell you like this, for extra credit, I've actually done this a few times. It might be a little morbid or hard for some of you emotionally. So I'm not saying you have to do it this way, but I'm going to tell you a way that I've done this a few times that has had impact on me. So I've taken my Bible to a cemetery and I've sat just, you know, overlooking different graves And I've read the entire book. It takes maybe 40 minutes to an hour or so if you read it slow and thoughtfully. And I just read it in that context. And it reminds me that it's too late for these people here. Whatever whatever they were going to do in their lives, it's already done. Whether Whether God was first or whether he was far from their minds, it's too late for them. But as long as I'm breathing and as long as you're breathing, you can still be writing your your eulogy. In fact, if you realize today that maybe you've been living uh, for the smaller story instead of the bigger story, you know, it's not too late to rewrite your eulogy. Okay, but that's my three points for you today. Begin with the end in sight. Write your own eulogy. 
and read the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me give you a minute to pray, and then I'm going to close this up. Lord, I pray you would speak to every heart in this room. And Lord, help us ask you this question. How do I want to be remembered? Lord, give each of us that answer. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.